Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and start. Thanks. Um, so we're, we're, we're talking a bit this morning about sort of the moment within Anglicanism uh, right, right now. And Mary and I kind of put our heads together to think together about what would be helpful for us to think about um, what's going on globally and even kind of how that impacts us um, locally as well. So I want to start off with a word of prayer. We have this lovely colic from William Laud in our prayer book for the Universal Church. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray for your holy Catholic Church. Fill it with all truth, in all truth with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is an error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, you reunite it. For the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. That sound all right? Okay. Um, I was thinking about um, definitions. Uh, when we define something, we're trying to um, demarcate or designate something as distinct from something else. You know, we, we have uh, various objects in the world and we're trying to figure out, oh, which ones are alike and which ones are not alike? Which ones kind of go together and which ones don't go together? And so we, we create sort of like conditions or philosophers like to use the phrase necessary and sufficient conditions by which we can demarcate things in the world. And so we look out in the world and we say, oh, you know what, like leopards and tigers those are like kind of like the same kind of thing. I mean, they're different from one another, but they're both felines, and that differentiates leopards from hippopotami or uh, gazelles or oak trees or what have you. So we, we have a definition by which we you know, demarcate various objects in the world. I think this is really helpful. It helps us to get by throughout the course of the world. But sometimes things aren't so clear as to have like a necessary and sufficient conditions by which we give a definition for an object. And I think that Anglicanism is one of those things that ends up being rather tricky to clearly demarcate out among the various entities in the world. And you can start pointing to some things about Anglicanism and say, oh, well, here's, here's what makes it distinct, here's what makes it different. And then you realize, oh, actually, it shares that with other things as well. So you could say, well, Anglicans um, have bishops. That's what makes them different from Baptists and from Presbyterians and from Charismatics. Um, but then you say, well, but Roman Catholics have bishops, Orthodox have bishops, Lutherans, Methodists have bishops as well. So, so that can't be the defining factor between um, Anglicans and other kinds of communions. Uh, or you might say, well, Anglicans have a, you know, a high respect of the Bible. They, they think the, you know, the Bible is the basis for which uh, we have our salvation. Well, that doesn't uh, uniquely demarcate off Anglicans from other kinds of Christians, because I mean, you might think the Baptists or the Evangelicals have a really high view of Scripture as well. And so through the course of um, the last, say, 500 years, there's been some efforts and there's been maybe confusion about how to define what it means to be an Anglican. How is it to be an Anglican is different than being a Roman Catholic or a Baptist, but at the same time, how is it such that being an Anglican is just part of being a Christian or one mode by which one can demarcate oneself off from those who are followers of Christ and those who are not followers of Christ? And of course, you can answer this question in a sort of um, historical or maybe kind of like genetic family resemblance kind of like uh, manner. And for a good, I mean, let's say we go way back to the very beginning of the, uh, well, say the very beginning, uh, the midway point, 
It's easy even here is a hard way to, de 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 to demarcate out. When does Anglicanism start? Does it start in, in, in the 1530s when uh, England broke with the Church of Rome, or does it start much earlier than that? And you even get differing views within Anglicanism uh, on that respect as well. We can certainly say one thing. There was Christianity in England, and there was Christianity in England going back as far as we know, even to the, the fourth century. Um, there's this old sort of like a tale that Anglicans sometimes like to tell themselves about, uh, what's, what's the song, is it, is it Jerusalem is the, is the tune, which uh, has the line, you know, and did those feet on England's green, well, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right, Denise? Yeah, right. What, whose feet were those? Those were Jesus, right? And so there's this like myth that at one point in Jesus' early days and his early lives, when he was in his, you know, teens or what have you, uh, Joseph of Arimathea happened to be his uncle or what have you, and Joseph of Arimathea was a tin salesman, and he took Jesus with him on one of his business trips up to England. And so even like, you know, the, that Christ himself walked in England, and that's a, a lovely myth. We have no idea if that's true whatsoever. But it's an effort to show an indigenous Christianity, you might say, that there was Christianity, there was Anglicanism, even from, would that be, you know, the, the, the tens or the twenties, A.D. from our, our Lord's origination there. Nonetheless, it's clear that we have Christianity in England for a long time, coming up until, uh, all the way up until we have the Reformation. And it was at the Reformation, though, in the, in the 16th century, that, that, that congested and, and chaotic, uh, religiously and politically, century, where there was something of a clear demarcation between the Christianity in England and the Christianity that had been on the continent and had been up to that point. And this was when, in 1534, we had what was then known as the Royal Act of Supremacy, wherein the, um, the king, Henry VIII, and parliament, and the official church leaders said, the pope, the, the, the bishop of Rome, no longer has authority, no longer has jurisdiction in this realm of England. That was a, cure, a, a clear step by which one they tried to define themselves, demarcate themselves as different. There was a Christianity with bishops and with liturgies and with a tradition that was centered in Rome, and there was now a, a fresh way of doing Christianity that no longer took its center from Rome, but took its center from the English shores themselves. So to be an Anglican in 1530 or 1550 or 1545 or what have you, was simply to be a Christian in England. You were a citizen of the realm, you were uh, subservient to the, the sovereign, and you were a part of the parish system that was all throughout the land of England. Parishes made up among uh, constituting dioceses, dioceses constituting uh, the entire church within England. For a number of decades, that worked out pretty well. And in fact, for a number of centuries, that works out pretty well. Anglicanism uh, on the backs of the British Empire begins to spread throughout the course of the, the known world. You know, it's been said that at one point, the sun didn't set on the British Empire. And as uh, English move to America, move to Africa, move all over the world, so too with it came the English church, Anglicanism. And so if you were in, um, let's say, Virginia in the 1690s or so, you might have been an Anglican. You would have been a citizen of the colonies here, you would have been under the king, and you also would have been within the English church, even though you were in the colonies. Now that got a little bit confusing in two specific locations in the 17th and the 18th century, namely Scotland and the United, well, what became the United States. 
And we can see this most clearly in the United States, right, when we have this break-off from a political entity that is the colonies here, from the political entity of the United Kingdom, there was also then a break between the um, religious component of that identity. So what does it mean to be an Anglican when you're no longer subservient to the king? What does it mean to be an Anglican when you're in the colonies or you're in Scotland where you no longer have that system? You're gonna start there? Okay, great. Do you wanna jump in there then? Okay. Um, so James was kind of explaining what Anglicanism was at the Reformation and affirming that there always was an Anglican or an English kind of flair, flavor to Christianity from the very beginning with um, um, the, um, well, the Celts and the Romans. They had kind of a, um, a um, different way of worshiping that was solidified and from that point on, England became a part of the Roman Church. And as James said, um, they broke away in 1534. So I did a lot of research yesterday about what happened with America, which is why I was kind of wanting to jump in. So what is happening now, I actually have to, if you can kind of see some of the thread of this, this has happened before. I mean, we first we had with the Act of Supremacy where England bishops said, we no longer recognize the Pope. Well, what happened at the American Revolution is that um, after the American Revolution, the, uh, the loyalists, uh, those who are Anglicans in America, some of them were loyalists, some of them were revolutionaries, and they, had, they wanted to come together and form a, a new Anglican church in America, but they had a problem. And that is, as James mentioned, this Royal Act of Supremacy required that all bishops swore loyalty to the king. And after the American Revolution, that wasn't going to happen. So uh, Samuel Seabury, who was the leader of the Anglican movement in America, had to go to Scotland to find to get ordained. He could not be ordained by the Archbishop of Canterbury because it was against English law in that he would not swear fealty to the king. Uh, the Scottish Episcopal Church had broken away from the Anglican Church around the time of the Revolution. Um, uh, the, the, um, the, glorious the Glorious Revolution where, uh, okay, help me here, James and, pardon? Oh, okay, well, Cromwell, thank you. Cromwell, um, they, you know, they outlawed the Book of Common Prayer and in Scotland, um, after the revolution, Scotland became Presbyterian. So then again, we had this problem where you have Scottish people who do not want to swear fealty to the king. And so they were given a special dispensation, I think it was by King James II, to form their own Scottish Episcopal Church. So in the American Episcopal Church, what does it mean then to be Anglican? if you're not going to swear fealty to the king. And in the American VCP in 1789, there's a little quotation here that they read, uh, that they wrote, when in the course of divine providence, these American states became independent with respect to civil government, that ecclesial independence was necessarily included, um, it seems necessary that they need to alterate the Book of Common Prayer, which they did, they were no longer 
praying for the king. They were praying for the rulers and the president. But here is the part, important part. If you compare this Book of Common Prayer with the Church of England, it will also appear that this church is far from intending to depart from the Church of England in any essential point of doctrine, discipline, or worship. So at the Revolution, the Anglicans are saying this is what defines us, not being even in relationship with the Archbishop of Canterbury, because they had to go, Samuel Seymour had to be um, ordained or consecrated in Scotland. He went to Scotland. Um, later, the Parliament passed a law that said that was a law for provinces of the English church beyond the shores of England, where this law basically said, okay, you don't have to swear fealty to the king if you are in a different country. That kind of solved that problem for then, but you can imagine there was a lot of, what are these Americans doing forming their own Anglican church and going to Scotland and getting concentrated, consecrated? So at that point, we have provinces emerging. And provinces, they, they are not, they have what they call local responsibility. So in other words, the, American, the English church can't come to America and say, these are who your bishops are going to be, or this is exactly, you're gonna, you have to speak, speak the king's English. But in matters of doctrine and worship, relying upon those, um, uh, those things that had emerged in the um, Reformation, Holy Scripture, Book of Common Prayer, 39 Articles, that is what was the foundation then for Anglicanism. So um, you have then, in the 20th century, as colonialism ends, you have more provinces emerging. Um, Kenya in 1960, Rwanda in 1962, Nigeria, others followed. And the thing that was really surprising about that is many people believe that the Anglican Church in Africa or in Asia, um, where uh, there had been, where uh, Britain had colonized those countries, that it would just go away. But it didn't. Under the local bishops, well, it had been under local bishops for a long time, but without England there, the Anglican faith grew, like, exponentially um, in those years, in the 60s, the 70s, 80s, 90s. It's still growing. Uh, for instance, there are something like, um, I think, I believe it's about 20 million Anglicans in Nigeria alone, compared to in the United States, we have 1.5 million Episcopalians. So another thing emerged in um, 1888 was the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral. And again, the church is trying to define, as James said, what is different about us? How are we different? And that was actually the issue there. This was in the middle of the um, Anglo-Catholic movement uh, when there was actually, in the American church, some people wanted to take out the word Protestant Episcopal because they were more identifying with their Catholic heritage. Eventually, it was taken out, but it wasn't until like the 1960s. So in Chicago, uh, the Bishop of Chicago came up with these, um, these four identities for what makes Anglicanism different from Rome and from um, the Eastern Church, the Orthodox Church. And there was some talk of even having to some, some sort of ecumenical talks where they could worship with each other. And so we have again here, 
he developed this, uh, these four uh, points and they were passed by the House of Bishops in the United States in 1886. And then they were brought up at the Lambeth Council in 1888, and this is resolution um, 11. And these four points are often pointed to uh, now, today, as this is what makes us Anglicanism. And again, the Holy Scriptures containing all things necessary for salvation, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the two sacraments, and the historic episcopate. So the historic episcopate that is where um, those who were trying to have talks with Rome, where it completely broke down, because Leo X, basically a few years later, said, we do not recognize any Anglican bishops. They are not a part of Rome. So, so the, the ecumenical talks broke down, but these four parameters continued. So again, how do we bring these separate provinces together? And in 1867, the Lambeth Council first met. That was all the bishops all over the world of the um, Anglican Church. Even then, you can see there were 24 colonial bishops. Um, this is how it was worded when, at the time. And so these bishops came together, and they wanted to solidify and bring all these desperate, disparate provinces into a stronger communion with each other. Um, later, there was like, well, how do we figure out how to do other things together as a, um, with churches all over the world? Like, how do we kind of regulate all these new prayer books that are coming into addition, like the Kenya prayer book and the Nigerian prayer book? How do we, what, 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 what do we, how does faith and practice, how are we unified in faith and practice throughout the whole world? And that is why the Anglican Consultative Council came into being in 1971. And the best way of describing this is it's kind of like a legislative council of the Anglican Communion. And it wasn't until 1979 that the primates began meeting together. The primates were like, okay, you have bishops, like in America, you have you know, the Bishop of Chicago, you have the Bishop of Quincy, um, but then we have the presiding bishop, who is the bishop that presides all over the, um, all these bishops together, so that he calls the meetings together when they have their general assembly every three years, for instance. So the presiding bishop is kind of like the president of the um, Anglican, Anglican Church in America. We have our Archbishop Foley is a primate of the Anglican Church of North America. So the primates are like, kind of like mini Archbishop of Canterbury's in a sense. They are over a larger region of each area. For instance, in Nigeria, they have hundreds of bishops and then they have one bishop who is the primate of, um, of Nigeria. So that's what a primate is. The primates met together to more or less, it was a, a meeting where they would come together in fellowship um, it was the Lambeth Council that actually issued resolutions. Um, so that's, that's kind of some of the history of how the, all the provinces came together. Today, if you would go to the Anglican Communion website, it's actually a very different picture as how they define Anglicanism versus the historic church. There's no mention of 
the quadrilateral. Um, there's no mention of creeds. It is, the Anglican Communion is a family of 42 autonomous and independent yet interdependent national, pan-national and regional churches in communion with the See of Canterbury. In other words, what it means to be an Anglican is that you are in relationship with the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's been reduced to that. Um, there was a meeting in 2022 of the uh, Anglican Consultative Council, and there um, this statement was released. Um, the question is raised whether there is a single faith and order by Anglicans anymore, and instead affirms the importance of seeking to walk together to the highest degree possible and learning from our ecumenical conversations how to accommodate disagreement patiently and respectively. Uh, so that's where the Anglican Communion, as far as the Archbishop of Canterbury and the English Church and the American Church are some of the larger churches, the Church of Canada, this is how they understand what it means to be an Anglican. So James, the rest is up to you. So I think as, as Mary was sort of sketching here, um, what it means to be an Anglican begins to be a little bit trickier to answer once you no longer have a political situation that is aligned with the, the, the British Empire or with the, the British state. And the various provinces, these local adaptations of the Anglican Church, um, are becoming independent as colonialism recedes in the 20th century. And as Mary alluded to, we have places in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Southeast Asia, or what have you, wherein um, there's no longer a political tie to the British crown. And so how does the spiritual tie to England manifest itself? And this is where I think Mary began to sketch here these kind of instruments of communion at the bottom of your handout there um, emerge as a way to uh, solidify or, 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 or bring together what it means to be an Anglican across the, uh, across the world. So there was, um, right, four there, the Lambeth Council, uh, Council, Lambeth Council, Anglican Consultative Council, the Primates Meeting, and then the Archbishop of Canterbury himself were seen as instruments of communion. My sort of like read on this is this is like an attempt to try to understand or try to uh, give a, hypoth a hypothetical or a, a test for what, how can we be Anglicans together when there's no longer a British Empire, when, when there's no longer colonialism afoot here. Maybe these sort of four modes, these four meetings might be a way that we can organize ourselves globally in order to say, yeah, we're all doing the same thing. We can define ourselves as different from Roman Catholicism on one hand, or orthodoxy and other kinds of Protestantism um, on, on the other. That's all well and good for a couple of decades until we end up having these crises in the Anglican Church, uh, specifically with respect to understandings of human sexuality. Now, my read is it's not primarily about human sexuality, rather it's about bonds of unity. How is it that we're going to like be together? Sexuality is the sort of like presenting cause or maybe the symptom or the area, the domain in which there was dispute, but I think it really could have been any area of dispute um, that was testing these, these 
factors of unity, these, these bonds of unities that are being enacted across um, uh, these, these four instruments of communion in order to show that we are together. It just so happens that the issue was the most hot button issues of contemporary society and in, in churches. Um, so this is on the bottom or the middle of the page there, we have the election of a, 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 of a, a non-celibate uh, gay man to be the Bishop of New Hampshire. This was in 2003, which came just a couple of years on the heels of a Lambeth conference in 1998, which established, uh, well, this was the first established in 1970 and then was reiterated in 1998, what the Anglican perspective on human sexuality is. This is a long paragraph, but I'm going to read it anyway here in the middle of your page there. In view of the teaching of scripture, um, the Anglican church upholds faithfulness in marriage between a man and a woman in a lifelong union and believes that abstinence is right for those who are not called to marriage. Anglican Communion recognizes that there are among us persons who experience themselves as having a homosexual orientation. Many of these are members of the church and are seeking the pastoral care, moral direction of the church, and God's transforming power for the living of their lives and the ordering of relationships. We, that is the bishops of Lambeth, commit ourselves to listen to the experience of homosexual persons and we wish to assure them that they are loved by God and that all baptized, believing, and faithful persons, regardless of sexual orientation, are full members of the body of Christ. While rejecting homosexual practice is incompatible with scripture, these bishops then calls on all our people to minister pastorally and sensitively to all respective, irrespective of sexual orientation and to, get, to, to condemn irrational fear of homosexuals, violence within marriage, or any trivialization or commercialization of sex. They, they cannot advise legitimizing or blessing of same-sex unions nor ordaining those involved in same-gender unions. That was again 1978 and then reiterated in 1998. Four years later, the people of the Diocese of New Hampshire decided not to go along with this um, uh, requirement here at Lambeth 1.10 and elected Gene Robinson, and then was consecrated in 2010. This then put this strain, and a lot of you who were Episcopalians at the time remember 20 years ago what this was like. There was a lot of confusion across the globe. People, across, uh, bishops and, and Anglicans across the globe said, well, hey, hold on you know, we just decided here, like a couple of years ago, as reaffirming the historic position of the church on this one doctrinal point, what are you doing going and kind of thumbing your noses at this agreement that we had together? This seems like you're not playing according to the rules that we've established for ourselves here. You're not, you're not respecting the bonds of unity that we have established in these four instruments of communion. That then caused no manner of a small amount of discussion and back and forth and various gatherings together of our leaders across the globe to try to figure out what do you do with, one, the American church, the Protestant Episcopal Church that was going against this Lambeth um, requirement in 2003, and then also the Anglican Church in Canada, which had authorized trial liturgies for the blessing of same-sex unions, again, in, in, in violation of this principle here at Lambeth 1998. Um, there are a few meetings here that occurred. We have the primates meeting in Windsor uh, in 2000, which was receiving the Windsor report. The Windsor report was this um, a study that was commissioned by the Archbishop of Canterbury to try to offer some sort of way of, of, of providing uh, space for there to be differing opinions on a particular uh, doctrinal topic, the sexuality issue being uh, foremost of those. Um, that ended up not having enough sort of like teeth for those on the more traditional side and ended up not having enough leeway for those on the more um, progressive side. Um, the back and forth that was going on here in, 2000, in the two, early 2000s, from 2003 to say 2008, 
for trying to find a way to hold together, given the current instruments of union, given the current bonds of unity, the entire Anglican communion, when there was a clear uh, rift on an understanding of a fundamental point of Christian doctrine, a fundamental point of scriptural interpretation, and a fundamental point of our relationship with one another. In response to this, in 2008, we had the first GAFCON conference, Global Anglican Future Conference, which was mostly uh, called into it, which uh, uh, inaugurated or brought together by those who were in the Global South. And as Mary alluded to, by the time we have in the 2000s, early 2000s, most of the Anglicans across the world are in what we would call the Global South, the two-thirds world, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, or, or what have you. This is the, the, numerically the largest amount of Anglicans are in these locations, and yet there was still a fair amount of, uh, let me say, authority, bureaucratic authority, by those who had been you know, in there the longest, England, Scotland, the United States uh, uh, as well, those who perhaps had a bit more, a bit more money. And so many in the Global South were frustrated because they felt like their, their, their concerns, their, their, their uh, observations on the discord within the communion were not, being, were not being addressed, were not being met. And so this conference called together in, in 2008 in Jerusalem uh, was an attempt to uh, articulate a, a new vision for the future, a, a tighter relationship among the Anglicans across the globe in order that we wouldn't just rely on these um, these instruments that had been previously enacted in the last few uh, decades in order to show that we are all together, but rather would have something, something tighter, something closer, something a bit more substantive in terms of doctrine and, and practice. The Jerusalem Declaration came out of the first GAFCON in 2008, um, which was one such op uh, uh, proposal for how we might think of our relationship with one another on more doctrinal um, lines. And we have that, we don't have that here, right? We don't have that one this one. Do we? No, it's, in it's in our prayer books, that's right, of course. We have that in our prayer books there. That's a great, that's a great point there. And it also was in 2008 that the Anglican Church in North America was called into existence by these Global South leaders. The Global South leaders felt that we can no longer work with the Anglican Church in North America, the, sorry, let me make that adjectival. The Episcopal Church, which was the version of Anglicanism in the United States in the early 2000s, we can't work with them if they're not willing to work with us. That is, we can't work with them if they're not willing to hold uh, fidelity to the kinds of relationships that we had enacted previously. And so we need to have a new way of doing Anglicanism, one that is more closely in union um, with doctrinally as well as um, I mean, even say sort of culturally with those who are in the majority world. And thus our church was birthed at that point as well. So what has been kind of, uh, I think, slowly occurring since, um, since 2002, 2003, 2004 was a, a, a sort of a parting of the ways between those within the Anglican communion who wanted to hold fast to the traditions of the church, who wanted to hold fast to the Lambeth Resolution that was put here uh, in 1998, and who wanted to hold fast to greater bonds of interdependence, and then another kind of Anglicanism that really wanted to value independence and local adaptation. And this seems to be the line that many in both the United States, the Western world, England, Scotland, Canada, New Zealand, uh, to some extent Australia as well. But I think what that gets at, that gets at kind of this fundamental distinction or fundamental difficulty with defining Anglicanism. 
Is it going to be one that's going to emphasize interdependence, that is our mutual accountability to one another across the globe, as, as well as like within our local adaptations? Or is it going to be one that's going to emphasize independence, that is each province is able to maintain their own doctrine, their own traditions, their own understanding of the faith as it might be best for them in their, in their, local, um, in their local situation. Um, most recently then, within um, the last couple of weeks, we had the fourth GAFCON conference, which was held in Kilgali in Rwanda, um, which itself too brought together um, not just those who are part of the GAFCON movement, but those who are part of what's officially called the Global South Fellowship of Anglicans. So Global South sometimes being used as like an umbrella term to refer to those just like in the geographic Global South. But there's also this sub-organization called the Global South Fellowship of Anglicans, which is made up of 14 provinces, I think it is? 14 provinces, which includes South America and also the Anglican Church in North America as, a, as a, a, an ecclesial body itself, which is, um, which is trying to find ways within the communion or even outside of the communion for how do we articulate our relationships with one another across the globe. And I think that movie does put its finger on a little bit of like a, say, a, a tension since 2008 to the present of how to go about engaging with the rest of the Anglicans across the world. There is one sort of, um, I don't know, flavor or impetus that says, you know, the whole thing is just not working. We just kind of kind of like start over, start from scratch and, and build up a new relationship with one another, a new modes of relationships across the globe. That was kind of more the GAFCON emphasis, although it, it wasn't, uh, you know, enacted necessarily in any programmatic ways, uh, except for the calling into existence of the Anglican Church in North America. Um, and then the Global South was, uh, has continued to maintain this posture, and this came out too in some of the interviews I watched as well, where they have tried to take this posture of like, well, we don't need to break the, or the, we don't need to start over, we are the Anglican Communion. We don't need a new communion, we're the Anglican Communion. We're the majority of Anglicans across the world. We're the ones who have been faithful to all the resolutions that have been put forth across the history of the church. It's those who are in violation of these things. It's the, it's the Archbishop of Canterbury, in, in fact. It's the, it's the Church of England. It's the Church of Scotland. They're the ones who have removed themselves from the Anglican Communion by no longer adhering to the traditions that we have all received. We don't need to start over. They need to move on and do their own thing. I think we saw at Kilgali was I mean, this, this uh, 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 a beautiful moment of kind of these two movements coming together, the GAFCON and the Global South coming together to say, it's going to be kind of like tricky to figure out, but we've got to figure out some way to bring these two um, uh, inclinations together, both a let's start from scratch and let's like tighten the bonds of unity for us who are in the community in, in order to um, uh, demonstrate that we share the same doctrine and the same faith. Uh, and to come together and work together on some sort of vision for what it means to be Anglican um, in, the next, in the next century. Now, where does that put us right now? I, I think right now we are, um, uh, we Anglicans are on the, well, maybe we're in the middle, or maybe we're at the very threshold. I'm not quite sure how long it's going to take, but something like a renewed, reset, reordered Anglican communion is on the horizon. Something wherein we can demonstrate with more, um, with more substance, with more doctrinal meat to it, that there is something to being Anglican that is unique and that is um, also common across the globe. Some sort of a shared articulation of the faith that we've received, the practices that we've received, 
the, the, the worship and the expression, and even in some respect to the, the culture that we've received as, as those within the English tradition, locally adapted to the various ways in which Anglicanism is experienced in, in Africa and in South America and in Southeast Asia and what have you. But one also that shows together that there is interdependence, there is tighter bonds of unity among those who are in, um, who are concerned with maintaining the long tradition of the church. What those who don't want that are going to do, it remains to be seen. Perhaps there is just further independence that is gonna be desired by those who wish to um, um, ignore or contradict the ways in which Anglicanism has been expressed throughout the course of the centuries. That, that might happen, there might be less of a, um, uh, there might be a less of a way of demarcating those as actually Anglican, but in some sort of just more like kind of adjectival sense, a, a broad sense, or kind of in this sort of like grand tradition, but aren't actually part of the Anglican church or the Anglican communion uh, across the globe. Hard to look into crystal balls to see where things are totally going, but that's kind of like my read on where in which our communion is gonna be, is gonna be heading. Now, what does that do for us, like right here at All Souls, like, you know, in this very local adaptation of Anglicanism? I guess for me, that has kind of motivated me to continue to, like, push into interdependence. And I think within um, American Anglicanism, well, within Angl Americanism in itself, we got an independent spirit, right? You know, we're, there's no surprise that congregationalism has like, you know, taken root here in America. Individualism is something that's kind of part of our, our, our DNA. Um, I think it's sometimes to our, to our detriment. I'm trying to think about how do we as Christians live more into interdependence, into tighter relationships, both as individuals and as a congregation. How do we build bridges with those Anglicans that are around the country, even around town in this crazy town that we have here in uh, Wheaton, uh, Illinois, um, as well as, as our relationships across the globe too. So I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question I think that I wanna ask and continue to ask and I want us to ask as well. It's like, how, do we, how can we live into interdependence? How can we live into tighter bonds of unity with Anglicans here in this location, with Anglicans in the state, Anglicans in the province, Anglicans in our continent, as well as Anglicans across the globe. And um, that's something I suppose I invite you to think with me about as well as we go forward in this moment. Do you want anything, Mary? You want to take some questions or something? One of the things that the Global South is trying to do is to kind of revive this conciliar form of church government, which is what Anglicanism is. It's not hierarchical like the Roman church. Um, if you think about in 325 when all the different bishops came together to, um, to work out what Orthodox Christianity is, which is the Nicene Creed, that was a council of bishops and that's where conciliar comes from. And I think what the, um, the Global South is trying to do is saying we don't wanna have, we have a kind of a semi-hierarchical church here that was never intended to be where the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Anglican Consultative Council is deciding what it means to be Anglican. And rather, we would like to work with each other as bishops, those who are faithful to the historic church. We're going to begin to form a conciliar structure where we can hold each other accountable to, as bishops to defend the faith. There is nothing like that happening in the overall Archbishop of Canterbury world. Everybody can kind of believe what they want to believe. And the Global South is saying, no, we want to maintain the historic church. 
and as bishops, we're going to be in submission to each other in more of a formal way. So I think that was kind of, um, I think is really helpful to understand this conciliar moment. Yes, Brad. What is the Anglican communion now? Is it just Gafcon or is it, does it well, include the Episcopal Church, the Church of England? Um, it depends who you ask. Anglican communion as an official <coughs> organization um, with a website <laughs> um, has these four instruments of community, uh, instruments of union as articulated what it means to be an Anglican. Uh, Arch of Canterbury, Anglican Council, the Lambeth Conference, and then the, um, the Prime Minister. Um, well, in that regard, you know, Anglican Church of North America is not in the Anglican communion on a sort of like on a website sort of fashion way. If you look at other ways of being in like communion with Anglicans across the globe, you might think of what are our bishops in relationship with one another? Do we recognize communion? Like, do we receive communion in these various locations? If you ask that question there, you think of off the website sort of thing, then it seems like, oh, actually, the Anglican Church of North America is in communion with 85, 80 to 85% of all Anglicans across the world. It's only a small minority that don't see the Anglican Church of North America as a viable Anglican entity. So what does it mean to be an Anglican communion? not so clear. Maybe in about two decades it will be yeah. completely clear. But I think since 2002, 2003, it's, it's become less and less, it's become more and more murky what being an Anglican and therefore being in the communion actually means. And the instruments of communion have in a sense failed. And even Canterbury is recognizing that they failed. And they're forging like this new way. For instance, in 2016, there was a primates meeting where all the primates met together and they affirmed um, because uh, all the Global South primates were there, they affirmed Lambeth 1.1, they said the American church had to actually, you know, they had to take a back seat for three years to repent. Six, right? six or three? No, no, 2016 was when the primates meeting was, where they were asked, the um, American church was asked not to sit in on any ecumenical, they could only observe the at the Anglican consultants, they could not be members of the Anglican, voting members. Um, and that was supposed to be a period of repentance. Well, at the end of that three years, business just went back to normal. And uh, interestingly enough, I'm not sure they've ever even had another primates meeting since then. They've just had the Lambeth councils, which is very much controlled by what the Archbishop of Canterbury, I mean, that's a, that's a program, it's very programmed. It's not bishops getting together and talking together like they were in 2016. Go ahead, yeah. Anybody else? Rich. I think it's even broader than you stated. Actually, the conciliar idea is not just the bishops, but there's a place also for the clergy. Yes. And also for the laity, yes. all in consultation with one another. And that's, I think, the model that's before um, the Global South right now. Yes. Yes. That would be another talk for another day. But it, it, it's a, it's, that's how our government process is in the Anglican Church of North America. Is there, when it, the voting, uh, when they have conventions, um, clergy, lay, and bishops all have voting rights. So I think we have to go now. Um, the t more or less, there's these two statements attached to this. We more or less had this session so that you could understand when you read these two very important statements, that you could understand the history behind them and what has happened in the last 
uh, 500 years that led us to this point. So I do hope you'll take them home and read the statements. You'll get a much better, more thorough idea of what we've been talking about in this very brief time. Thank you.